Welcome to another episode of the Bible Archives. And today we are going to get into Genesis 24 and Genesis 25. And from the last two chapters, we had a huge emphasis on the covenant itself through Abraham. Um, You have that whole scene where Isaac's almost killed. That's going to continue to play a role in some of these narratives. But the heir was confirmed, which is necessary if the tribe is going to multiply. And then Sarah dies, which is also going to play a role in this chapter. Um, But that also gives Abraham some possession of land that he's going to need. And we're going to see the story kind of pick up from there. And again, we're going to get some emphasis on the covenant. But now it's starting to transition from Abraham to Isaac. And Abraham seems to be going to some lengths to make sure that it's set up to transcend him. Which is interesting because we haven't really seen that from Abraham too much. He's a little bit egocentric in some ways. And now as he's approaching death, well, he needs to make sure that this thing continues. Which that in itself is an interesting thought. Um, of Abraham recognizes, as many of us do, that he's part of something that's bigger than him and will continue past his death. So it's an interesting transition that's taking place. And in some ways, uh, this is mostly a way to set up the narrative of Jacob, who uh, forever transcends his father, Isaac. Um, But these are uh, some narratives that actually have a lot to do with Isaac, even though he's still kind of not a main character. Um, so these are uh, these are important texts for whatever's going on with Isaac's story. So there's a lot going on here. Um, so let's just start at the beginning of uh, chapter 24. Yeah, just to synopsize this whole thing. The Abraham cycle here is winding down from its climax then in chapter 22, where we talked about um, the, the potential sacrifice of Isaac and how that worked out. The final blessing then has been uh, pronounced on Abraham, and we see that Sarah's gone now. And so in this chapter, Abraham is just winding up his affairs. He wants to see Isaac married off before he dies, and so that's an important thing to do. And it's important to him that Isaac does not marry one of the Canaanite women. So this story is probably Jay's source. We see a lot of rich dialogue. We see a lot of character development. And it's a very interestingly, masterfully told story that finalizes Abraham's days and gives him peace, assurance of the future, and of his descendants. So what Abraham does then is he calls his senior servant. We don't know if this is Eliezer from chapter 15, but we do know that it says that he had uh, control over all of his property and had been with him the longest time. But... um, He calls his servant, and he charges him with the serious duty of finding his wife. It's such a serious oath that he asks his servant to lay his hand under his thigh, which is, in the Bible, a euphemistic term for the genitals. So what he's doing is he's asking his servant to swear upon his circumcision, which is the most profound and important thing that ever has happened to Abraham. That's how serious this oath that he is taking is. Um. For Abraham to make this solemn vow, it seems to indicate that he's worried that he won't live to see it fulfilled. So he wants to make sure that this is going to happen. And it's very important that his heirs are from his line in order to fulfill the covenant because it has to be through his lineage. So for Isaac to marry a Canaanite girl would be a real tragedy. It was um, strictly forbidden in the book of Deuteronomy and then later on in the Edicts of Ezra. So probably the writer of this, writing from hundreds of years later, is trying to make sure that we understand that 
Isaac as marrying a woman from within his own kinship. Um, that's a practice they call endogamy, and it just meant marrying within your kin so that your line remains pure. This is important because then Abraham's story needs to be a particular kind of story. It serves as an archetype of the Jewish people of that time. So just like movies or books today might reflect a society's cultural needs and ideologies, this helps us to see how that is important. Yeah, and just to reiterate a couple of those details, um, the, the whole place your hand under the thigh, anytime a blessing is going to get passed down, uh, as we go through Genesis, you're going to see that same practice. Mm-hmm. Um, do we need to emphasize too much the actual placement of the hand? No, this would be a good example maybe of something that uh, don't take that as a literal thing to rep- replicate. <laughs> exactly, um, no. <laughs> but the, the important part is it's plain to the circumcision. So it's not necessarily about the body itself. It's about the ritual that concerns the body. And if you remember, circumcision is all about the passing on of the seed Mm -hmm. that it will be marked always. And so whatever blessings getting passed on, it's dealing with that, uh, that, that lineage, um, of the family of the tribe of the ethnic identity. So the blessings kind of carried on with all of that. Um, also, you know, this is purely about Isaac and, you right. know, when he says, you know, take, go, go and get a wife or a woman for my son, it's not for Ishmael. We, we know that Ishmael is now gone from the story. So that's, that's a way of kind of saying, so it is all about Isaac now. Um, and then with the Canaanites, also notice that Abraham denotes that among whom I live. Okay. Yeah. And so you're getting you're getting this picture of um, ancestral heritage getting passed down. So the tribe is multiplying, which is one of the important promises. Um, but also Abraham now lives in the land that eventually Israel is going to call their own. Um, he's amongst the Canaanites, and as you get into the book of Judges and even into Joshua, you're going to see that they're entering back into this land. Um, and it deals with these people. Well, that started here. He's Abraham's already living among them. He's and he's inhabiting that land. Um, but as you pointed out, the the emphasis in these first few verses is there is an ethnic separation um, from them. Yeah. You can't marry from these people. So th- I think this is partly about uh, distinguishing tribal identity. Because if they're starting a new tribe, remember Israel doesn't exist yet. So I know we're using we're using that term, but Israel, we don't know who that is at this point. Exactly. Um, but Abraham's saying so. As this continues, it has to start from the same family heritage as him. It can't come from anyone else. And you know we we tend to focus on you know ethnic purity, and that that's certainly playing a role. Um, but it's, it's more about making sure that everyone knows that, uh, Abraham descendants aren't Canaanites, even though archeologically we might (laughs) argue with that a little bit. The, the writing wants, wants it to be clear here. Um, it's not from anyone else. So that's something that you see in, if we go all the way back up to, uh, verse one, just to kind of set the context for how this begins. We find out Abraham's old. He's well advanced in years. And Adonai had blessed Abraham in all things. 
So when he goes to find a spouse for his heir, his son Isaac, we we have the context that that blessing that started back in Genesis 12 is is also getting passed along with this. So it has to fit all these parameters in order for that to be accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we do know that Abraham, you know, well advanced in years, is is approaching that uh, 120 year cutoff. Um, which is going to come up when Abraham dies as well. But uh, that was set back in the flood narrative, and and here Abraham is approaching that, and that's probably, I think the author wants us to kind of hear that, to go, oh, Abraham's about to die. So all of this stuff has to be taken care of. So then we get this uh, conversation with the the servant, and this is going to be one of the last main interactions that we see with Abraham. And this conversation, you see a disposition, a, a literal one, because there's there's dialogue here um, of Abraham and how he's interacting with the servant kind of reveals something of this change that we're seeing with, with Abraham. Yeah, it seems to me that we see a development in the character of Abraham. It's like he goes from being doubtful and trying to negotiate his own way of moving through the covenant forward to having a strong faith in God that God will fulfill it then. It's like he doesn't hesitate to assure his servant that there is an angel who will guide him in finding the wife of Isaac. For example, this is what he says, The God of heaven, who promised me under oath, saying, I will give this land to your offspring, will send an angel before you, and you will get a wife from my son from there. So these words seem to me like a contrast to those first words that he does back in chapter 12, where he says, Oh, Lord God, what can you give me, seeing that I die childless? And then he says, how shall I know that I will possess it? So it's like he's being He's being the the, uh, voice of adamancy here. Mm -hmm. So instead of him questioning it, you know, maybe we could assume the servant's going like, but wait, how is this going? And he says, no, no, you know, there's a promise here. There's an oath here. You also get that word angel that shows up. Yeah. And if you remember from Genesis 18, angel, messenger, and you have to start asking questions. So who is the angel going to physically show up in some way? Who ends up being the angel or messenger Mm -hmm. in this chapter? Because in Genesis 18, it ends up being these travelers, right? Yeah. Um, So, you know, I just bring that up because we tend to see angel and we're like, oh, with the wings and was like flying in front of the servant then and... That's not necessarily where it goes, so pay attention to to what that might implicate. Yeah, no, there's a lot of angelic intervention at the different points along this thing, and it might have been interesting to take a look at that, actually, because we see it with Hagar and Ishmael. There's an angelic intervention. There's an angelic intervention mm-hmm. when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac, and so here, too, maybe this angel has something to do with that moving forward of that covenant. And we just need to see there's a plurality of yeah. manifestations of that. Sure, you it's know. not like you said, not some particular demigod kind of thing, but another uh, manifestation. And sometimes here. that depends on the, the source, too. Okay, you know, yeah. if mm-hmm. it's an Elois source, it tends to be uh, different than a J source. Yeah. Sometimes it's a voice. Sometimes it's a person. Sometimes it's a, a, an internal recognition of something. Right. And I think it's it's just interesting to point out that even these ancient texts are 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 acknowledging this diversity of ways that uh, there's you know what we would call divine revelation. Mm-hmm. But Abraham is kind of promising that to his servant as he goes that hey this is this is actually going to uh, be fine. You're going to know exactly what to do. 
Um, one thing that's interesting that is going on here, dealing now with this woman, because they're talking about um, this woman that's going to be the spouse. And the servant brings up this issue of perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. The first thing that I think is really interesting about that is that this potential bride is therefore going to take the same journey that Abraham did back yeah. in Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a point I hadn't seen. And it's so, you know, we're talking about if you if you look back at Genesis 11, the characters and the setting that are used there when Abraham, it's Abram at that point, is going to leave and he's going to kind of follow this arc of civilization into this, you know, supposed wilderness of, of Canaan. Um, this potential bride is going to make the same exact move. The same exact people are brought up mm-hmm. that were brought up in Genesis 11. And here it says coming back to this land. So you can kind of picture her doing the same, um, the same travel log that Abraham had. But also... Um, the woman may not be willing to follow me. And we might not expect that to happen. We might expect it to say, but what if the father doesn't Mm -hmm. allow for her to become a bride? But it says, what if the woman won't follow? Mm -hmm. So already we're seeing that Rebecca seems to have a status that we don't expect. Um, And so that, and that's just from that brief part of the conversation there. Abraham also specifically says um, that Isaac cannot go back there. Yeah. So not only is there some ethnic distinguishing within this, right? We're not going to marry from within the Canaanites. Mm-hmm. But there's also a geographical distinction here too, right? The, the tribe can't be Canaanite or right. et cetera. All of these tribes that we've kind of seen at odds um, with with Abraham and his clan up until now, but it also can't happen in Ur, in in that location and setting because that's eastward. It's the civilized metropolis, yeah. And so you kind of see them distinguishing the, all the ways this can't happen here. Mm-hmm. And then it, you get this line of um, where Abraham's recounting um, what Adonai had said and said. To your offspring, I give this land. And I don't think that's just a nice generic statement or sentiment. That's very descriptive. Your offspring, it has to be your offspring, and it has to be this land. Yeah. Um, so that's some of the stuff that I see going on there. And then, you know, the the oath is taken. The, the hand in the thigh thing is going to occur now and... The, the, the master and the servant relationship is going to be put on display with that. And I, I think that happens after they've discussed all of this tribal and geographical commitment. Right. Right. And it's happening through the one who's in charge of the heritage and the state, not Abraham. Abraham's kind of losing agency here. He's having to put the trust in somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, this woman has the potential to render the whole oath invalid. Um, so a lot of implications going on as this dialogue happens to kind of set up the narrative. And then the servant's going to leave. Now, this section here is really long. A ton of dialogue happens. Yeah, this is very Jay. Uh, and, um, I mean, this is a narrative. This is meant to 
kind of give you a picture in, and you could even put this into like a, like a film with a, with a score behind it and mm-hmm. see all that. It could be a short film, but it could be a film. Um, but so the details are, are going to be really important as you read this and what's happening. First one you get is verse 10. The servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed and took all kinds of choice gifts from his master. And he set out and went to Aram Naharim. And then it mentions the city of Nahor. Um, that Aram Naharim, just it's the literal translation is area of two rivers. Sometimes you'll see that translated as Mesopotamia there. Um, it's just a generic way to express this this place that, you know, whether it's Tigris and Euphrates mm-hmm. or it's it's that area where the rivers are coming together mm-hmm. uh, to go into the sea. And this is kind of marked as the first civilization, um, whether that's Sumer or Ur. This would be the Fertile Crescent then. Yeah, yeah. but okay. specifically that, that part that's starting to dip down mm-hmm. uh, because it's not north. The north would be Assyria from that. Okay. Which also has these same rivers leading to the sea. Um, but it's, it's a way to just mark that generic area, which, which plays mention to, so Aram Naharim plays mention to, um, Genesis 11 and where Abraham's from, but also you get some sense that this is referring to Genesis two, where we're giving discussions of rivers as well. That came up to me in the garden of Eden where the rivers flow in. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just kind of, yeah, that's where if yours says Mesopotamia, you know, eh, let's read a little bit deeper into that. Um, what's what's being referred to here? You know, all these details are important. Um, but then it also brings up the city of Nahor, which is Abraham's ancestral land. In Genesis 11, that's that's what's going on. That's where he is. Mm-hmm. So very specific reference to that. Um, but the ten the ten camels. Uh, it's a bit much. Those, yeah, there's probably, those are probably not literal camels, um, might have been. There is some argument about whether camels would have even been domesticated at this point in the second millennium. Some say yes, some say no, but they're, they'll come up later and they, and they represent not only the wealth of Abraham, but also you'll see the generosity that, uh, Rebecca displays. Yep. This, this is important. 10 camels, choice gifts. Yeah. Both of those mm-hmm. are going to come up, uh, as this goes. But you could look at um, just verse 10 so far and go, this sounds like an emissary. You know, Abraham sending a delegation as a ruler. And in some ways, and this has already happened a couple times, Abraham's being positioned kind of as a tribal chief. Right. It's not just a person. This is somebody who's very wealthy, has a lot of land, uh, has a lot of notoriety and influence. Look, sending an entourage. Mm-hmm. Uh, for this to happen, so this is this isn't an, an ordinary marriage arrangement. This is something bigger, and the receivers of it are going to notice that. Mm-hmm. We'll we'll see mm-hmm. that come up. Yeah. So the 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 descent back happens, um, and the servant ends up outside of the city by a well of water. Yes, he we does. know now that anytime you see this. A marriage is about to be arranged. Absolutely. Um, according to literary tra- traditions, um, we see these recurring kind of messages. And uh, we've talked a little bit about women in wells before. 
and other water sources. And here we find that same motif. So at first glance, you would think it wouldn't be surprising to find women by wells because that's the place where a woman would come. Usually getting water was the task of the women. And so if you were a young man and you wanted to talk to a young woman without her father present, that might be the place to go. But it's also the place where a stranger in town might stop because it's a gathering place. But there's also then, these biblical writers have added layers to that detail on that familiar scene. It kind of is supposed to invoke a larger meaning, perhaps, to the listener's mind. I mean, we've seen two already matriarchs now will be found either by their future husband or by a servant beside a well. So, and in each case, there's a heroic act of hospitality that gets carried out at that scene. So here we see Rebecca, he not, she not only offers water to Abraham's servant, but she carries water to the 10 camels as well. Um, real quick, as an aside, the, you get some language from the servant. So verse 12, and he said, O Adonai, God of my master Abraham. So this is sounding similar to what Abraham just did in the opening. Mm-hmm. Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. I am standing here by the spring of water, and the daughters of the town people are coming out to draw draw water. Let the girl to whom I shall say, Please offer your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. Um, on the surface of this, this is very necessary for uh, figuring out who the person's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. There's also a part here of we this is this is a prayer. And we haven't seen many of these so far within Genesis. That's right. Uh, of direct requests, supplements to to God. Um if we're going to use this as a standard for um how how the ancient Jewish people understood prayer, notice that it it, it is a divine request that involves human response. And th- there's one notation on this that if if the servant had just prayed and said, God, make this happen, he would have sat there by that well and died from thirst. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. He he actually needs humans to act as well. Right. And I just think that's an interesting, interesting yeah, picture. Yeah, I think so too. But this brings up the question of how will the servant know who is of Abraham's heritage? So this was the thing that was going to get revealed to him. He mm-hmm. would know. How How does he know? Does it just happen like uh, Rebecca is going to walk up and a light's going to like shine over her spotlight and ah, that's the one? Mm-hmm. Or is there something else that's actually telling us how we know what's going on here? And this is where it goes back to the camels. Yeah. So the servant says, the one who, when you know, when I ask for a drink, will also water the camels. That's going to be what tells the servant who who the right person is. And the reason is because we can translate this as the one who shows extreme generosity. And this is where that detail of 10 camels is really important. Yeah, very. Yeah. Um, 10 camels. Okay. A camel, especially when it's thirsty and these camels have been traveling, 
can drink up to 40 gallons in one sitting. So when she, you figure, here's Rebecca, she's got just her maiden's jar for gathering water on her shoulder. Which is what, you know, right. offer me water from sure, your jar. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, got so that. we know she has this jar on her shoulder. Can't be more than maybe five gallons. She has to draw water for 10 camels. That comes off to 400 gallons of water. Mm-hmm. So to me... That's like an echo of when Abraham goes to Sarah and says, quick, take 50 pounds of flour and make bread for these strangers who have come. So she says to this man, sure, I'll give you a drink and I'll also draw 400 gallons of water to water your camels. It's a lot of water and a lot lot of of work. And and the servant doesn't ask for that. It's when he just asks for a drink for himself this person will also respond with extreme generosity. Yeah. And that's what shows, I think what the text is trying to reveal to us is that's what shows that she would be a part of Abraham's tribe. Yeah. This incredible hospitality goes, ah, must be a descendant, must be of the same line of thinking and identity. Hospitality is built into their DNA. Mm Because it sounds very similar to Genesis 18, what happens there. Yeah. Another thing that happens is, so verse 15, before he had finished speaking, um, there was Rebecca, and then we get these details that are the exact names that we find in Genesis 11. So this is confirming um, that she's of that tribe, and she's got the water jar, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and she does this. But before he had finished speaking, if you, if you remember, this is similar to what happens when Abraham is listening to the, to God dealing with the covenant. And we've been having this covenantal language. Abraham always acts before the speaking is done. Mm-hmm. Oh, well here, before he finished speaking, here comes Rebecca. And guess what? You know, she's from that line. She's uh, a relative of Abraham's. This is going to be it. And then the whole thing happens uh, the, the way that it would need to in order to affirm this. She she waters the waters the camels and the confirmation of this being the promised one, the the one that needed to then come back with uh, the servant, is fulfilled. So now it's at this point that the servant actually um, it initiates the process. Okay, so verse twenty two: camels finished drinking, the servant takes out gold nose ring weighing half shekel two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels just ways to go that's a lot and then after the merchandise has been shown asks about um this this woman's identity so kind of a confirmation are are you of this ancestry or not and she confirms she's a daughter of nahor um which back in genesis 11 we're told is abraham's brother so this is all going according to plan uh, in, in terms of the marriage proposal. Um, Milka, who is uh, Nahor's wife, back in the chapter um, in Genesis 11, comes up as well. One one thing that we're not sure of here, because we get we're going to jump forward, and we're told in verse 29 that Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Um, we don't meet the father. No. No, in fact, it's kind of strange because when Rebecca leaves the servant, it says she runs to her mother's house. So you wonder why her father isn't mentioned here. And uh, it's possible that maybe he was just too old by that time to really be in charge of the family anymore because it kind of, it kind of seems as if this has fallen now to Laban and his mother rather than the father. 
and and this is a Laban kind of becomes a primary spokesperson. And this yeah. is important because this is now also setting up character development for later. Yeah, for sure. So we should be paying attention to how does Laban function. The first thing that uh, we notice about him is he runs out to the spring and he sees the nose ring and the bracelets. Now, Laban also offers hospitality here. So oh, that seems sure. to be a character trait of, mm-hmm. yeah, of this group of people. Yeah, he's feed all these camels and put up the men. So it isn't just the servant, too. He's got probably an entourage of people with him. Right. And so there's probably wealth on their end as sure. well. Mm-hmm. Um, what we don't see, or, or maybe if we're going to read into this, Laban's hospitality doesn't seem as genuine as Rebecca's did. Because, yeah, no, he seems a little mercenary. He doesn't give it until he sees the gold nose rings. Right. Yeah, Rebecca acts before mm-hmm. knowledge of anything. Laban acts, and maybe it's it's too much to discredit him here. Maybe he would have hypothetically done all this had he not seen them, but the, the author makes mention to say right. he sees the things and then offers the hospitality. Um, but then we get an interesting interaction from the... Uh, from the servant, the servant actually dismisses the hospitality. So this is kind of saying, hey, I'm not just a guest or a traveler who happens to have a lot of wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, Laban does not yet know the intention. And so the the servant speaks the intent of his journey. You know, he's there for a purpose. And then makes the case for a bride price, which reveals uh, the connection with Abraham and the wealth that is involved with this, you know, at this point, it's being displayed as a transaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, um, this is where an interesting uh, dynamic of the narrative comes up because all along we've kind of had the um, assumption that this was going to be Rebecca's decision. As we get to uh, closer to like verse 50, it's appearing that the speech implies that the family together is going to be decided. Um, and so th- that's a tension here. Is yeah. Rebecca the one making the decision here, or is it the family, or is it a strange dynamic of both? Yeah, I would kind of say it's probably a case where Rebecca may have the final say or a little bit, but of course she's going to tend to go with what her family has to say. It really is hard to tell. Um it's hard to tell, for example, whether they're saying, does she have the agency here or does she just have the choice between staying 10 days or leaving right away? But according to those newsy documents that we've talked about before, where they had those laws that they found, there was one particular uh, document that they found that was a marriage con- contract, and it was stated in that it was from the woman's point of view. It was her side of the contract, and it says, with my consent, my brother Akolene gave me as a wife to Hurazazi. So it's like she herself got to do this with his her consent, but it's like the brother was the one who negotiated. So it could be a case where the family negotiates, but the woman is like, maybe yes, maybe no. Mm-hmm. She's probably going to go along with what her family says, though. Yeah, and just based on other things we see, it could even be that the woman has to first say, I'm... I'm interested in this. Yeah. And then the family goes, all right, so let's do the negotiation process yeah, now here. We'll figure out the nuts and bolts, the financial and, side of it. And that's kind of, that's kind of what's going uh, on here as well. Now, mm-hmm. a more specific element of this narrative is, so in verse 51, uh, Laban and uh, Bethuel respond and say, 
hey, Rebecca is before you. Take her, go. Yeah. And, you know, she's going to be the wife of your master's son, just as all of this was was portrayed. Um, but then later they say, well, not yet. Don't take mm-hmm. her and go yet. And there's this tension of um, do do they want her to stay? Do they want her to go immediately? Are they waiting for something else? Or may, maybe, maybe this is part of the negotiation it could process. Be maybe they're holding out to see if he offers a little bit more to take her right away. But this is going to eventually be where Rebecca does make a, a final decision. Yeah. Um, but then in the meantime, as you get into verse 52, this negotiation process kind of gets out uh, more underway. Um, the servant brings out even more stuff. So it just kind of looked like, uh, mm-hmm. were they just waiting? <laughs> you kind of wonder. To, to, to see what they could get out of this. Um, and again, this is all kind of pointing to Wow, Abraham is loaded. Yeah. Um, but then the next day, the servant says, okay, send me back to my master. So now this is interesting of, is that just a way to confirm the deal's done right? You can you can send me back now. But the servant's waiting to have permission from, from these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's where they say, you know, let her stay 10 days. And Rebecca's response is... Uh, let me go now that yeah, I that I may ready. go see my master. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where they they ask um, they ask Rebecca what her thoughts are, and and she says, "I will go." Yeah, um, and yeah. and happens immediately. And then Rebecca is uh, kind of given this poetic blessing in in response, and this mimics a lot of the language that we've seen so far. And, if you're looking at this in a physical text, it'll probably be kind of written differently um, with with poetic lines. But the uh, blunt of the bet blessing is multiplication and then that she will possess her foes, um, which would imply gaining land. So again, yeah. multiply and have land. Those are the two promises of the covenant. So mm-hmm. in this blessing um, from from her family, they're actually kind of portraying the covenant in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of where that part of the narrative that happens, the negotiation narrative, if we want to call it that, um, ends. And we're going to get um, a, a slight denouement to this, to this interesting story that will bring Isaac back up. But I wanted to mention one thing about this Rebecca narrative, because this is known for something specific that doesn't necessarily come through in the text um, but in cultural conversations um, and more sociological psychological psychological uh, conversations and it deals with Rebecca's gender and you will sometimes see um, conversations about the Hebrew language where their discussion on gender um, so separating these two items, sex and gender, there's male and female uh, biological sex. And the Hebrew is very adamant about that. Like a lot of older languages, you have the masculine, the feminine. Um, But the experience of gender in Hebrew actually does have a plethora of forms almost on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to shoot this out front, this disclaimer if we're reading that and looking at that concept to uh, confirm certain perspectives in 21st century America, 
I think you've just used that poorly. If you were to go back and, and, and ask some of the ancient Israelites, so, so what's your thought on, you know, gender fluidity and gender identity? They'd probably be like, what are you talking about? Yeah, that, sure. that, that's not a, a conception, at least the political and cultural component that it has for us today. So be careful with that. However, there, there is a plethora of uses of pronouns and masculine and feminine forms. The issue here, specifically with Rebecca, is that the technical translation where it refers to Rebecca as um, a young woman could also be young man. So most of the, um, uh, the word endings that implicate um, biological sex are feminine for Rebecca mm-hmm. throughout the chapter. But then you get this, uh, this label that can be translated as young man. And it's wherever you see the Hebrew nunayin rash, usually translated helper. Nunayin rash just by itself means young man or young servant man. If you add a hey to the front of that, um, then it becomes young woman. In the literal Hebrew, and this is where you have a problem with timing, scribal translation, and all of that, the hey is not there because it's a vowel sound, and um, in ancient Hebrew, there were no vowels, so it would all just be nunayin rash. Um, As we get later documents, the hey gets added, and the debate is, was that added as an intentional, you know, scribal license to change the text so that it made, you know, the feminine referred to Rebecca, say young, young female or young woman, or did it originally say young man with all of these, um, um, feminine forms attached to it, which makes it a bit uh, difficult to interact with. Um, and then somebody went in and said, no, we, we have we have to we have to change that, um, or was it just not included? Because that's that's how you did things in ancient Hebrew. There were no vowel sounds, yeah. So we don't know exactly what's going on. Um, mm-hmm. I have seen very well written articles on both sides of this debate, making very strong cases for both both readings of this. It is interesting to bring up if that is the case that it, it, she is kind of called a young man but still given feminine forms again right. i don't think that is um a, an argumentative license to say see they they were pro lgbtqia or however you want to frame that right that's that's not a primary issue for them so then we have to ask so why would they do it and what role would that play And that might become more obvious um, as you keep reading about Rebecca, because she very often acts with a certain power that in order to be legitimate would have to be given um, um, male form to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, culturally for them. Um, She certainly seems to act, as we find out later in the story of her sons, Jacob and Esau, in ways that put Isaac and her husband, the father, in a more passive role. So she's taking a strong agency in the way things work out. And she's really the person who, in a way, through trickery, pushes forward, though, what the covenant is supposed to do. And in that way, she kind of acts as a patriarch more than Isaac. She kind of does. And so maybe that is a reason of going, we're going to frame this as young man, but Mm -hmm. also with feminine forms. Mm -hmm. And and we're going to leave that ambiguous 
Um, so there's a lot of different ways to approach that. I, you go ahead and interact with it however you want. I wanted to make sure that we brought it up because this, this specific chapter is known for that debate. Um, at the same time, we're going to meet Jacob and Esau soon who are portrayed as, um, fulfilling the, the ends of the spectrum on uh, masculine gender identity where Jacob yes. very much appears to take on feminine characteristics and Esau takes on incredibly just overt masculine characteristics and yeah. they clash together. So just know that that is um, something going on here. Now, back to this denouement of the chapter. Um, we see Isaac again now starting in verse 62 for the first time since uh, Genesis 22 when he was you know, almost killed by his dad. In this chapter, he still doesn't speak. And that's interesting to note. Yes. He's still not um, using communication. In fact, he is just almost like a side character. He's not a very active narrative. character at all, no. Um, he's also coming from Be'er Lahai Roy, which is the place Hagar named after her interaction with Adonai dealing with Ishmael. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's coincidental. In a space where uh, Hagar had a separated moment from the tribe um, and found healing and a future, it's almost like um, Isaac leaves without his dad. And, and if you remember from Genesis 22, Abraham returns, but Isaac isn't with him. So, so where does Isaac go? Well, it looks like he went to Be'er Lahai Roy. And it was that actually him now coming into the presence of the divine and finding some healing in a future, just like Hagar did. Hmm. Um, so I think it's important that they mention that place. But then we get this interaction um, with Rebecca and, and Isaac. And if you are a romantic at all, you read this gushingly and, <laughs> ah, isn't that so nice? I thought it was romantic. <laughs> <laughs> Love is a hearty perennial. Even in a world of patriarchal patriarchy and contractual marriage, sometimes marriages still work out to be happy and people yes. are in love. That was the way I read it. <laughs> you give us the deep, more deep details well, and, here, though. And it is interesting because there is specific language used to portray that. Mm -hmm. And we need to start asking, well, so why would it get portrayed that way? What What is going on here? What's the importance of, of this? Um, and, I mean, just looking at the details of it, so Rebecca approaches, and again, the the there's like a cinematography about this. Yeah, for sure. Rebecca slips quickly from the camel upon seeing Isaac, apparently from a distance, and then ask the servant, who she's been yeah. interacting with, supposedly traveling with now, mm -hmm. who is the man over there walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. You know, the one they've been talking about, haven't named this whole time. Like yeah, the guy's name's no going to be Isaac. Guy, yeah. Anything about him, not even his name. And uh, so she takes her veil and she covers herself. Mm -hmm. This would be a way of framing um, purity, mm -hmm. uh, virginity, pre preparation for marriage. Right. Um, and so it, it almost starts feeling like an ad hoc marriage ceremony is about to take place. Yeah. Um, and then the servant goes and uh, tells Isaac about his experience um, with Rebecca and her family. And so Isaac's response to that is Isaac brings her into 
um, his mother Sarah's tent. And this is the first time um, that we've seen a mother's tent come up since Genesis 9. Mm -hmm. In Genesis 9, the mother's tent was used um, inappropriately. Yeah, I was going to say that wasn't a good scene. And that, if if we're connecting dots here, Mm -hmm. that led to the curse of Canaan. Right. With, with Noah's son. And so now um, a mother's tent is entered. It is explicitly not involving a Canaanite because they've taken all this time to say not of the Canaanites. And true. now this one's going to actually lead to um, a positive, the, the continuation of, of the covenant and the first generation of that after Abraham. So I kind of, kind of looking at this as a climactic this is the direction things have been waiting to go for a while. Okay, We've spent yeah. all this time on Abraham. Mm-hmm. It's transitioning. And look, it's transitioning correctly. And so he took Rebecca. She became his wife and he loved her. Mm-hmm. All very, it could have just said she became his wife. Right. But there's these extra details added in. And if you look at some of the other languages, especially dealing with sexuality, sometimes it's, um, and they knew one another. Right. Um, sometimes, and he entered her, mm-hmm. and it doesn't use that. It, it specifically uses this framework of take, becomes spouse, and loved. And all those three work together. And um, Sarah, if you remember, is dead at this point. And so this line, this chapter ends with, so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And I do read that, and I go comforted um because of what now we didn't get a sense because we haven't seen isaac mm-hmm. that he was mourning sarah's death we that, don't really know it that never came up right now we, if we're reading this chronologically we go well uh he's comforted because his mother uh his mother is dead mm-hmm. and he's sad about that so comforted after his mother's death means he's rebecca has sort of filled that void and um, she is now a woman who is a part of his life. Covenant will continue. He's comforted. Sure. I can't help but read back to Genesis 22 when we did get this um, implication that Isaac was um, suffering. And is his marriage to Rebecca also about how he is now included in the covenant that he was almost killed because of? And so has he found some healing in this process of being affirmed that, yes, the covenant will continue through you, through this marriage, you possess this blessing, and it's going to continue? Hmm. Or is it both? It could be. You know, it it very well could be both. Sure. But that's how um, this, this chapter ends. And so we've seen when it comes to an heir, Abraham has done this correctly, checked off all the correct boxes. Mm hmm dealt with all of the potential issues, everything set up perfectly for the, uh, the, the, the ancestry to continue. We still have the issue with land, and that's going to continue to come up. Um, and that, in fact, that's going to continue to come up all the way till Exodus and then, uh, you know, Joshua and Judges. And oh, it keeps on that, going That's and going, going to be going, an issue. Sure. But we've confirmed the, the process of lineage. Mm-hmm. Now that Isaac is married, we're going to now kind of jump and the genealogy is going to uh, continue and this possibility of inheritance is going to come with it, but also, um, you know, what's going to happen with the land. 
and there's going to be another marriage and some concubines and a scene change. Um, and then this next chapter is going to now conclude Abraham's story. So it's almost like he had to deal with these things, right. make sure this passed on correctly. That's going to become a theme. Mm-hmm. Each patriarch's going to have to do that. Um, and, and now we're going to f- have a finality to Abraham and the shift's going to become about Isaac and uh, very intentionally shifting to Isaac and then also Isaac's sons. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the wrap-up of um, Genesis 24. So let's get into Genesis 25. This begins with a marriage. So Isaac just got married, very long ordeal in setting that up. Now (laughs) Abraham's going to get married again and uh, significantly less details about about this one. Yeah, that's true. Um, he marries a woman named Keturah. And according to some rabbinic traditions, she's the same person as Hagar. Right. Now, whether that's true or not is hard to say. There's actually no evidence in the Bible that it's true, but it's included in some of the Midrashes in the Talmud. Yeah. Um, frankly, an interesting proposal. Yeah, an interesting but. proposal. But I, I found it, and mind you, not being a, a Hebrew scholar, I still found it doubtful just because on the reading, it seems like, First, the author says, Abraham takes another wife whose name was Keturah. So she's connected then to Abraham that way. And then in just another verses, the narrator is talking about Hagar, and he explicitly says, Hagar, the Egyptian Sarah's slave, which seems to distance her from Abraham. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't seem likely to me that the author here is thinking about the same person. Yep. So another thing you're seeing here is uh, genealogies are happening. And we've seen this in Genesis. Anytime you get a genealogy, you should be thinking scene change. Mm -hmm. So we're we're wrapping up issues. We're we're kind of zooming forward, taking long looks at everything. uh, another interesting detail. So, you know, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and then we're, we get a list of these sons. Um, and you'll notice that with a lot of these uh, these people who are mentioned in these genealogies, they don't really show up. So earlier genealogies, we're kind of getting a picture of like, okay, so that helps explain that. This is also very uh, ideological, it's is giving an explanation of how things work and their origins. Okay. Um, and these are going to implicate different places and people groups, but they're not nearly as connected as other ones right. to the narrative. Um, so it does play a role that way, but it's also kind of giving another picture at Abraham and just, uh, so it lists the sons, all these were the children of Keturah. And then in verse six, but to the sons of his concubines, like, wait a second, Abraham had concubines? Mm-hmm. When did... <laughs> yeah, right. Where, that was where a slight, slight detail that yeah. was not mentioned up until now. Um, and good luck wrestling with that. Um, but the, the, the focus of this seems to be, in verse 5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Um, so Abraham gives gifts to his other children while he's still living, but he sends them away. Yeah. He sends them East and he sends them east, and you know, hopefully by now, if yeah. you've been following along and going, ah, yes, East, not good, right. not important, not, Foreigners. not yeah. going to be part of this. Um, so 
the emphasis kind of culminates with a separation of Isaac from all other sons, all other potential threats to to taking over the covenant. Right. And this is something that has been happening with Isaac now for, for some time since he was born, is a separation to make sure Isaac's known as the one. Right. Um, and that's going to happen again even with uh, with. Ishmael is is he, he's going to be named in much greater depth, right? Mm-hmm. But it's very clear. Now he is also not not the one. So if without getting into a lot of the details about the genealogies or Abraham's concubines or any of that, it seems to be emphasizing we're just trying to make sure everybody's clear that this is now about Isaac and nobody else, just in case there was confusion. We do, however, starting in verse seven and eight. Um, get uh, the first real description of death of a person. So people have died, but this is going to go into depth about Abraham's death. Mm-hmm. Um, Abraham lives to 175 years. So passes, passes the limit. Well done. Yes, very much so. Um, but the description of his death should strike us. So in verse 8, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. That's a really interesting description. Yeah. And because it's the first one, we should try, what are they trying to say about death and about Abraham Mm -hmm. with this? Do you have any thoughts? Just that he's gathered to his people. Mm-hmm. Um, and what does that mean? Well, we'll see when he ends up getting buried where he is put. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important. And also the fact that Isaac and Ishmael are both present at this point. Mm-hmm. So his two main sons, he's got all these sons. Those are the two that appear in this dust scene. Yeah. And that's worth bringing up. That's going to come up here uh, mm-hmm. with the rest of the chapter. But the idea of two sons yeah, um, or just multiple sons all interacting even competing in ways is going to be a theme. Yeah, for sure. That, that'll we see that through. come up again. So here you have it with Ishmael and Isaac. Um, but he breathed his last. And remember, what's the essence of the human being, according to Genesis, is the breath of life. Right. So what does it mean for somebody to die? Their breath is gone. And that's something that has carried forward in Jewish tradition and even in the Christian tradition of the the breath being absent means death. Right. A thing is not alive until it breathes, according mm-hmm. to Jewish tradition. Yeah. And it's not it's not necessarily the blood. The blood is the life uh the life pulse, the sure. life source, but it's the breath. Once that's gone, this person is now dead. Mm-hmm. It's not a physiological description necessarily. It's not trying to make a case for, you know, when 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 somebody should be described as dead, no. don't use it that way. They're they're trying to make a point as the source of the life, the divine breath is now absent from mm-hmm. this person, and that marks the end of their life now. Um, the the old age, yes, reference to um, that that year span, that limit that was put on um, by Adonai, but then this line full of years, and it's the same it's the same phrase for the wholeness or the fullness that Abraham was called to back in discussing and ratifying the, the covenant. And so it sounds like he did it. He was called to this, this wholeness of embodying what the covenant was about. And he was, he was full of years. He was wholeness of years. Mm-hmm. It, and that seems to be intentional. Um, and then gathered to his people. So he, he is going to be buried in the cave of Machpelah. Um, 
And that's important geographically. Is this is the the field that was purchased from the Hittites. So this is about the land, yep, possessing it, land. owning it. Um, but being gathered to one's people, the archaeologically they have found um, ancient Jewish burial sites, which is full of bones. It's and it's all sorts of different people's bones. Hmm. And what what it looks like the ancient Jewish people would do is somebody would die and they would bury them for a certain amount of di- uh, time until the flesh decayed okay. and rotted. And then they would dig the bones back up and put this in a hole in a hut or a house or a cave or a burial site. And you would be like literally gathered to your people. Oh, interesting. So they put everyone together into this one space? Their bones. Their bones, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a really grotesque way to see ancestry, but like here, here they all are. I think it sounds kind of cool, um, actually. But it's important because it marks that ethnic identity sure. and that commonality. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're just kind of reading this, he breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. You can almost look at that also as a timeline. And one way that this has been said to be important is because there is a required amount of time of mourning. And that seems to correlate with rotting of the flesh. Okay. So the breath is done mm-hmm. and you mourn until the flesh is gone. And then you allow them to be gathered to their people in a you know physical representation of that. So that's some of the stuff that's going on um, with the death. He is buried with um, both sons present. And he, he is with Sarah at this point. Um and then we find out that after the death of Abraham, God blessed his son, Isaac. Yes. So, so far, this is all, this is separating Isaac. Both mm-hmm. sons are present at the cave. Right. And after all that's done and Abraham's dead, Ishmael doesn't, God doesn't bless Ishmael. It doesn't say he does. I mean, he is given genealogy. He's given a descendants, which was promised to him. Yeah. But it doesn't say he gets the blessing. I think that comes up later too with Jacob and Esau. Yep. Because there's birthright and blessing. Right. So so here, Ishmael still receives, still a part of this, mm-hmm. but it specifically says, and this line is almost kind of like tucked away at the end, but it's really important because... From like Genesis 12 through 18, the whole thing was about God blessing Abraham, right? Yeah. Well, Isaac gets not even a full sentence about it, um, but God bless his son Isaac. So mm-hmm. we know now, okay, it is Isaac. All of this is now Isaac's. Um, he's going to be the one to continue it. And Isaac settles at Be'er Lahai Roy, the, the same place that Isaac came from previously to meet Rebekah that Hagar was in mm-hmm. and it seems like a, a move away from Abraham's journey a little bit. Um, and it, it's, it's a description that we almost don't expect that he's going to be living in this yeah. place that had more to do with Hagar and Ishmael than Abraham. I know I questioned that. I wondered why that was the case. Yeah. It, it's an interesting way to frame it for sure. Mm-hmm. And so now that we know Isaac has the blessing, now we get another genealogy of Ishmael. Yeah. And I think this is partly to end Ishmael's narrative because this is going to be the last we're going to hear of Ishmael as a person. We'll hear right. of the Ishmaelites, but the last we'll hear of Ishmael as a, as a person. Um, and I'll, so give some finality to the story. 
also some ideological information, especially dealing with places and, uh, you know, future history. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also some of this be, beyond uh, the separation from Isaac, the ideology, uh, the, the finality of Ishmael's narrative. Um, this is also a way to honor some of the promises that were given to Ishmael. Sure. Um, because you'll, you'll notice that the, there's there's 12 tribes spanning from him same as yeah as Isaac and Jacob mm-hmm. um and you know he, he was going to be a uh, a whole tribe himself and that that seems to be happening so yeah what was said to Ishmael is true it so it seems mm-hmm. well what i think is interesting is that Ishmael really does sort of foreshadow then Isaac's son Esau later because Ishmael is presented in the back in chapter 16 with his mother Hagar as a man who is in the wilderness and, and every hand will be against him and yet he'll fight. And Esau is also that person who is very much a man of the open. He's the hunter. And then when he gets a blessing from his father, it's that same kind of blessing. Your, you know, your brother's hand will be against you, but when the time comes, you'll break his yoke. So it's kind of like there's a parallel. I don't know. That seems to I, me anyway. I think that plays with the two brothers motif. Yeah. But it, it's also important to Ishmael's narrative here Mm -hmm. so this whole thing is kind of set up he's he's called abraham's son and that's it so there's this tension of you know just in case you were thinking he was still going to get the inheritance it's going to make it very clear right similar to esau um and 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 in this you know we were given very explicit details in contrast to the sons of Ketherah, giving very explicit details so ishmael's a step above all those others right but not as good as isaac right there's something lacking we know about his role, his identity, born of Hagar, the Egyptian, who was Sarah's slave girl. Right. Mm-hmm. We're, we're just being really careful that we know who this is that we're talking about. Um, and then throughout this too, this is an interesting thing I noticed, is firstborns are mentioned. Right. The oh, firstborn. Yeah. The first. Mm-hmm. Ishmael's not called that. He does not get the title of firstborn in this. No, and that's a recurring theme. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, it, it's yeah. almost like the author is digging at him on purpose. Maybe. I don't know, but I think it could be another foreshadowing because that whole theme of the underdog, the younger son, the trickster, yeah. it's a serious folkloric motif that we see continuing forward in this. And yet, oddly, again, once again, actually, the way this writer tells it in the story, it changes differently than a lot of other folkloric versions of the same story. Yeah. And so Ishmael's technically a firstborn, mm-hmm. not given that title here. Yeah. Um, another another side detail to mention: a lot of these places you're you're going to see, you're going, and and some you can still recognize. Oh sure, Midian, um, I think is one of his mm-hmm. sons. But then we're told in verse eighteen to kind of wrap it up: they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria, and he settled down okay. along all side of his people. So he's kind of north. Right. But Egypt and Assyria being mentioned in connection with Ishmael is not a typo. No. This is a very real way to they're going to be set against each other. Sure. And he's an Egyptian through his mother somewhat. Mm-hmm. That's his genealogy. That's his genetics. Um, now, there is a... Uh, this is worth mentioning. If, if you're reading this, you're, you'll notice in verse 17, there's a parenthetical script that gives the same death scene to um, Ishmael. Um, usually 
when you see a parenthetical script. This is something that was, um, it's in some manuscripts, but not others. Oh. They didn't really have parentheses then. Mm-hmm. Or it's a English translator's way of saying, this seems to be an aside. We're going to per- put parentheses there. Um, but if this was added later, why did someone want to include a more intimate description of Ishmael's death later? That's true. And why would it have been left out of the initial account? And again, it seems to be, you know, Ishmael's not afforded a lot of the um, expressions that are given to the actual patriarchs. Um, no, but it even mentions how old he was when he died, which seems to be the, an important thing to mention about a person. Right. And so leaving that out is, it kind of feels like a stab, you know? Um, yeah. But now firstborn's not, uh, you know, given to um, Ishmael, but his genealogy comes first. Mm-hmm which implies, is he the firstborn there? But it also, all of this has been to set up. The actual story is about Isaac. And that's who this is going to be focused on. And um, though it doesn't appear this way, you should approach verse 19 as a genealogy because it starts, these are the descendants of Isaac, Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And then instead of just listing years and, and people, like we expect from a genealogy that we've been reading so far, it goes right into a narrative. Yeah. So Isaac's genealogy is actually this whole next several chapters about Jacob and Esau. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing that does is it gives a really interesting genealogy, but it also means we're not, we don't care about Isaac because Isaac's whole narrative (laughs) is the narrative of his sons. Yeah, he's just set up for his sons. (laughs) So it begins the same. Then we find out he's 40 years old. That's when he got married. Um, And then it goes into Rebecca's heritage, which we just, that's incredibly important. Right. Um, And then, you know, just when you thought Isaac can't get pushed to the background any further, the story becomes about Rebecca. Yeah. Um, and this this is important to the narrative. Um, she is barren. Yeah, just That's like another motif, just like sure. Sarah. Mm-hmm. Except Rebecca does conceive now, so it's set up the same kind of way. This is the patriarch. This is how this is how things go. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it comes up starting kind of in verse twenty one that um, Isaac has to pray for the curse of barrenness to be lifted and it works sure and it's like it does work and what's funny to me is it reminds me of when abraham is with sarah in abimelech and abraham has to intercede with abimelech's wives and concubines in order for them to become fertile and then right away after that next chapter oh look at sarah has isaac I don't know why these guys didn't just pray to begin with, honestly, because it almost seems like that's what they're supposed to do. Yeah. It does bring up, uh, it brings up problems because of that, sure. right? Why didn't they interact with this first? Why, why, what are they waiting to find out? They have, the suffering has to happen and then they respond. Um, but then a, a larger issue is if they have to pray to Adonai for this to be lifted, does that mean that Adonai caused it? And this brings up, We've seen this several times now in Genesis, this issue of theodicy. Right. Of, so this curse, God caused it? 
And why would he do that when he wants us to go forward? That doesn't make sense and, for God to act. And the only way. way that God will not allow the curse to continue is if somebody decides to ask. It's got all to do with the sister-wife scenes, but that gets complicated, and that's later. But that's those are questions we have to ask, mm-hmm. right? And and certainly people have used this as a way to say, your suffering is because God wanted you to suffer. And if you don't want to suffer anymore, you better beg God. And now we're starting to create systematic theology out of narratives that yeah. probably shouldn't be used that way. So just be careful. Mm-hmm. I, I guess that's, that's what I'm asking um, <laughs> with this, because it... It's complicated. The way that it's framed is not the ideal way that maybe we wish that they would have framed it. Right. You know, more details, please, but we don't get them. Um, The emphasis that I'm thinking they're trying to give is that um, it shows that Adonai can overcome even what was a major concern in the ancient world. Yeah, that's probably true. This is a huge problem. happens a lot. It's the lifeblood of of people. You have to be able to have children to survive. Mm -hmm. And look... See, Adonai can overcome this. Y'all's gods can't. Yeah. We've we've got the answer here. I, I think that's what maybe they're trying to do. It could be. It's a way of saying, look at us as Israelite people. These are our heritage. Our matriarchs were barren, and look at we're still here. Yeah. And that's yeah. a big theme for them. They're such underdogs all through their mm-hmm. history. Um, another thing that we got to keep in mind with barrenness is God does pay a lot of attention to barren women. Yeah. And if you remember from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God's kind of portrayed as a mother mm-hmm. who um, basically, sorry for being um, too visceral, has a miscarriage. Yeah. And God appears to be a barren mother. And the story you could look at of human history is God overcoming that barrenness to give life again. Mm-hmm. So when you see barren mothers, it's almost God having this empathic response of, I know what that's like. Yeah. Or, you yeah. know, so read read that into it more than the strange theodicy approach that <laughs> exactly. we sometimes have. Exactly, I like have. that a lot better. Um, okay, so then what's happening now in the chapter is we're moving into a new narrative, okay. kind of transitioning. Mm-hmm. And so... In in Rebecca's pregnancy, we meet these children. And the same kind of poetic refrain that was used um, for Rebecca when she was blessed by her family and left mm-hmm. is used here as well. And we find out that the children, they're struggling together within her. Okay, so we just found out Ishmael and Isaac. There's going to be struggles there. Well, here's two more children, brothers. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. also strugg- they're struggling already. Um, and then you get this vision prophecy about two nations are in your womb. They're, they're going to be divided. Um, and one's going to be stronger and the elder will serve the younger. So Isaac was the younger. He wins out in the end here. The younger is going to be over the elder, but we don't know who is who yet. Right. We, we haven't found that out. Um, and then we find out, oh, two were struggling with it because they're twins. And this is where the narrative shifts to Esau and Jacob. So there's still that section of chapter 25, um, but this is going to run us right into chapter 26 as well. So that kind of concludes the part with Abraham leading into his sons. And this next section of chapter 25 into chapter 26 is really going to start the Jacob and Esau Uh, narrative which is actually mostly about Jacob so that's what we will do 
next time. Thanks for listening.